Today's scripture comes from 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 3,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, if you haven't met yet, my name is Aaron, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And as Pastor Brian mentioned, uh, just a couple weeks ago, we started a new teaching series on 1 Samuel that we've entitled uh, After God's Own Heart. Now, what in the world does that mean, to be after someone's heart? Um, uh, I, think, I think one helpful way of uh, understanding what it means to be after someone's heart is uh, imagining uh, the heart uh, like an onion. If you want to know someone on a deeper level, uh, what you have to do is you have to sort of peel back the layers of the heart uh, to get to know that person deeper, or else uh, you run the risk of just knowing them superficially at best, or at worst, you run the risk of misunderstanding and misjudging who they are. And similarly, I would say that God's heart, imagine it like an onion. If you want to get to know God in a uh, deeper way, what you have to do is you have to sort of peel back uh, the layers of his heart uh, to know him better. Otherwise, uh, we run the risk of, again, knowing him superficially at best or we run the risk of misjudging and misunderstanding who he is at worst. And as we take a look at uh, our story today, uh, that is what is taking place here. The people are misjudging and they are misunderstanding who God is. And if it happened to the people back then, it's very possible that it can happen today to us uh, as well. And when we misunderstand and misjudge God, usually what ends up manifesting is this posture of either blaming God for things, or uh, if we're not blaming him, we're using him. And if we're not blaming or using him, what we end up doing is we fight against him. And so I want us to take a look at verses one to three. 
Yeah, and it says this, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? So if you've never read the Bible before, uh, the Israelites and Philistines were arch rivals. So think like Yankees, Red Sox, Harry Potter, Lord Voldemort. Uh, If you've uh, heard of the story of David and Goliath, Goliath was a Philistine. So they were arch rivals, uh, the Israelites and the Philistines, and so they were at war like usual, but this time the good guys lose, the bad guys win. And the good guys lose so bad, in fact, that about 4,000 of them uh, are slaughtered in battle. And so when the remnant of soldiers that were living and survived the battle returned to camp, the elders basically say, God, why did you, why did you bring this defeat on us today uh, by the Philistines? And the reason why the Israelites blame God for the defeat that took place is because they presuppose that if they believed in God, they deserved and were entitled to have everything go their way. So when things go sour and things go bad, what is the first thing that they do? They blame God. Despite the fact that they never saw God as to whether they should attack or not, they never sought out Samuel's advice, and that they initiated this battle on their own, uh, they still blame God anyway. And I just wanted to share two thoughts on this. So on the one hand, uh, whenever we experience uh, difficulties, hardships, suffering, and pain, uh, there are times where you have to know that when you experience bad things in your life, that it is not your fault. And there are some of us in this room that need to hear that when bad things happen in our life, that it is emphatically not your fault. On the other hand, there are times when bad things do happen in our life, pain, suffering, trials, hardship, uh, where we also have to know that sometimes it is our fault. And typically what happens when we dig our own grave due to our ego, our, our pride, and our blind spots, which we all have, typically what happens when we dig our own grave is that we cast blame on other people for what is taking place in our life. And this blaming gene is thick in our blood. In fact, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. What does Adam say in Genesis 3? God, the woman you put here, she made me do it. And what does Eve say? The serpent you made, it made me do it. So this idea of casting blame, it is thick in our blood. Uh, this DNA. John Stott, he says, we have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and minimize the gravity of our own. 
We have a rosy view of ourselves and a jaundiced view of others. Carol Dweck, who many of you might be familiar with, she's a psychologist and a professor at Stanford. In her very influential book, Mindset, Dweck says that John Wooden, the legendary basketball coach says, you aren't a failure until you start to blame. What he means is that you can still be in the process of learning from your mistakes until you deny them. And so here, Dweck makes a distinction between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. A fixed mindset is, I don't need to change. I'm good. A growth mindset is, I do need to change. I do need to get better. So when a person has a tendency to blame other people, is that a fixed mindset or is that a growth mindset? That's a fixed mindset, right? when we're casting blame. However, when someone owns up to their mistakes, what is that? That's more of a growth mindset. So the question that I wanna pose to every single one of us here today is this. Are you a blamer or are you an owner? Do you have a fixed mindset or do you have a growth uh, mindset? A good indicator, uh, uh, one way of in, you know, knowing whether we have a fixed or a growth mindset is how impulsively these things come uh, out of us. Now, owning up to our mistakes can sound a little bit counterintuitive, but just so you know, most things are counterintuitive in the Bible, right? So um, uh, the way up is the way down. If you wanna be first, you kinda have to be last. If you wanna live a fulfilled life, you have to pour yourself out for others. The idea of God becoming a man, very, very counterintuitive. I mean, Plato's mind would have exploded at the idea of God becoming flesh. So most things in the Bible are counterintuitive. And similarly, I would say that the idea of owning up to our mistakes versus blaming others is also counterintuitive. But if you wanna be a real leader, the first thing that you have to know is that the best leaders are lead repenters. They are not the last to apologize, but they are the first to apologize. They don't cast blame, but they own it. I was listening to a talk that one pastor was giving to, uh, to other pastors, and he said, hey guys, I know that you can preach, and I know that you can teach, but can you apologize? Because that is the mark of a great pastor. So let me just turn the tables around to you. You might have a good resume, you might be good looking, you might be good financially, but question, are you good at apologizing for your mistakes? Are you more of a blamer or are you more of an owner when you make uh, mistakes? Which would you say you are? The Israelites here were not owners, they were blamers, and the person that they blamed was God. But they were not only blamers of God, but they were also users of God as well. So take a look with me at verse 3b. And it says, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Uh, so here we have a description of what the, uh, uh, a mention of the ark of the Lord's covenant. We have a quick video that sort of gives you a visual of what the ark looked like. It was two by three uh, by two. And this ark was, you know, 
covered in gold, and it was located inside the tabernacle. So, uh, you know, what's the difference between a tabernacle and a temple? Temple's like a big structure, stationary, can't move it. Tabernacle is like a temple on wheels. Big tent, you can move it around. The Ark of the Covenant was located deep inside the tabernacle, and the high priest could go inside the tabernacle only once a year. The other 364 days out of the year, there was basically a hot, blinking, pink neon sign that said, do not enter, do not enter, but this is what happens in verses 4 to 5. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. So basically what happens here is despite the fact that no one is allowed inside the tabernacle, some men casually walk in, they pull the Ark out, and they bring it to camp. Because this Ark symbolized the presence of God, and in their heads, If we bring the ark out to fight with us, we will win. So their mindset was this. If we do this, God has to do that. And so what they were doing is they were using God for their own agenda and their own purposes. Instead of seeking God and listening to God, they were using him for their own purposes. John Tyson in his book, The Burden is Light, says this, Christianity is not primarily a plan of protection against the brokenness of the world, but a relationship with Christ in the midst of it. When we confuse those two, we end up using God as a kind of genie to ward off our existential angst. It's amazing how often this sort of uh, thinking makes its way into our lives. We have been taught that giving God a tenth of our income will fend off financial disaster and bring in blessing. If we live with integrity and operate according to biblical principles in the workplace, we can advance and safeguard our careers. But God is not a genie. Life is not a blank canvas. And reality is too complex a thing to get our arms around. Using religion in an attempt to manipulate God merely distracts us from the goal of our faith which is to enjoy an intimate relationship with him. St. Ignatius of Loyola said this, that sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Until we are convinced of this, we will seek to control our own lives. So uh, none, of us, none of us likes being used, right? Uh, and what happens you know, when we use people, like what are the dynamics that take place? Typically what happens is that we sort of enter into a relationship with them, not so much so that we can be friends with them, so much as because they have something that we want. It's a terrible feeling, right, being used like that. I think similarly, that's how God feels too. When we're in a relationship with him, not because we wanna be friends with him, so much as he has things Uh, that we want from him. I was listening to a uh, conversation uh, with Tim Keller, who's a local pastor here in the city. And uh, Tim was sharing, um, so he he has cancer right now, and and he's battling uh, cancer with chemo. 
And, um, you know, theologically, Tim always knew that uh, none of us are immune to pain and suffering. None of us. He even wrote a book on pain and suffering. So he, above all people, knew that no one is immune to pain and, and suffering. Uh, and, and then he got cancer. And uh, when he got cancer, he realized that implicitly in the deepest subterranean levels of his heart, implicitly without even knowing it, he believed that, God, if I, you know, if I serve you, if I help millions of people, if I start a church in, in New York City of all places, then, then you kind of do owe me a happy and a, and a healthy life. And it wasn't until he got cancer that he realized that implicitly he actually believed this, even though theologically he knew that it was wrong. And so my question to us today is this, is it possible that implicitly in the deepest subterranean levels of our hearts, we feel like God if I do this, you kind of owe me that. If I do this for you, you should do this for me. So I'll give you a few examples to crystallize this a little bit more. So if you're a student, grad student, finals week, instead of going to the library, you come to church. Is it possible that you might think implicitly in the deepest levels of your heart, all my friends are studying in the library, I'm here at church, God, you kind of owe me a good grade for being here. Is that possible? I think so. Is it possible that you are here today at Exilic, not primarily to, to, you know, to meet God, but to meet your future spouse, right? What, what are you doing then? You're using religion, you're using your moral performance to get something from God. Sometimes couples, when they're first dating, because, you know, what do you do when you're first dating? You, you, you put your best foot forward, right? So you want to impress the other person, maybe even spiritually impress the other person. So you'll say something like, hey, you want to start praying together? Or should we read a good book together? And, and that's awesome because you want to grow together. But if it only happens at the beginning of your relationship and not at the middle of your relationship, could be a bait and switch. Could be you using religion using your moral performance to get something that you want. Same thing with work, right? You, you act ethically with integrity. You don't gossip by the water cooler. You don't use a company credit card on wrong things. And so implicitly you think to yourself, if everyone else is like that, but I live like above and beyond reproach, then God, you kind of owe me a raise. You know, I should be recognized more for the way that I'm living. So it's very possible that implicitly at the deepest subterranean levels of our hearts, we believe that God, if I do this, you uh, owe me that. One helpful indicator to know whether we are truly users of God versus lovers of God uh, is the even if principle. And I'm getting this from one Asian American pastor named Mitchell Lee in his book, Even If. And Mitchell says that there are two kinds of Christians. There are only if Christians and there are even if Christians. And only if Christian says, God, I will follow you, come to church, go to CGs, you know, give offering, only if you do this for me. You get that for me, you provide this for me. And even if Christian, however, says, God, even if you don't give me that, or you get me this, or you do that, even if you do that, 
not going to ghost on you. I'm here for you. I'm going to stick by your side. I don't know why this is happening, but I'm with you. And only if Christian is a user of God, and even if Christian is a lover of God. And my question to you today is this. Are you a only if Christian or are you an even if Christian? Are you a user of God or are you truly a lover of God? The Israelites were not only blamers and users of God, but the camera shifts now to the Philistines who resisted and fought God. And so if you take a look with me at verses six to 11, it says this. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Interestingly enough, the, the Philistines uh, had heard stories about what took place, what happened to the Egyptians like 200, 300 years ago. So apparently the Exodus story, despite being 200, 300 years ago, kind of went viral uh, in the Mediterranean world. But despite the fact that the Philistines were hearing these stories, and even fearing these stories, they still muster up the courage to fight against God. And you know what's interesting here? They beat God, at least in their own eyes. This time, they don't only wipe out 4,000 men, they kill 30,000 men. Furthermore, they not only kill 30,000 men, but they capture the ark. They take God hostage into their camp, and they win at least in their own eyes. But if you take a look at the next two chapters, chapters five and six, what ends up happening is that when they bring the ark into their camp, God's presence as it were, their idols start falling to the floor on their own, people start dying left and right, and God's presence in their life is so unbearable that just seven months later, they return the ark back to the Israelites with gifts. Like they don't want it anymore, so they they bring it back. But you know what's even more fascinating? So obviously, like what's happening here is like holiness can't be in the presence of unholiness. Light can't be in the presence of darkness, that kind of thing. But what's interesting is that when, when the ark is returned to the Israelite camp, the same thing starts happening. The Israelites now start dying left and right. Isn't that interesting? And I think what the Bible is trying to depict here of humanity is this. There are no good guys and bad guys. We're all enemies of God. We're all unholy. Whether you're a Philistine, an Israelite, American, millennial, whatever you might be, we are all enemies of God because none of us are as holy as we ought to be. So whenever anyone asks the very profound philosophical question, 
Why do bad things happen to good people? You ever hear that question? Great, great question. Super profound. Why do bad things happen to good people? This is the question that the Israelites were asking. Why would God bring defeat on us when we're the good guys and they're the bad guys? They were asking the exact same thing. Why do bad things happen to good people? You know what the Christian answer, the biblical answer for that is? It's only happened one time in history. And that was 2,000 years ago. When the good man, the God man, died a death that he did not deserve. It's only happened one time in history. And he did it for us. And this is, this is what the gospel is about. So let me just, let me do my best to flesh this out for us. Uh, Brene Brown is an author. Many of you might know Brene Brown. And uh, she was sharing this humorous story about how um, she is a far more of a blamer than an owner. And she shares a story of um, where she was having uh, her, her second cup of coffee early in the morning. Bright pink sweater, bright white pants. Coffee filled to the brim. And as she's about to drink it, she drops it by accident, crashes into a thousand pieces on the kitchen tile floor, brown coffee splatters all over her pink sweater, white pants. And within half a second, the first thing that comes out of her mouth is, damn it, Steve. You know who Steve was? Her husband. (laughs) Night before, dude loved playing water polo. And she told Steve, Steve, I want you home by 10 p.m. Because you know that if you're not in bed with me, I can't go to sleep. But what does Steve do? Comes home at 10.30 p.m., Therefore, Brene doesn't get a good night's rest. Therefore, she needs a second cup of coffee when she ordinarily only drinks one coffee. Ergo, all Steve's fault. She calculated that within half a second. Damn it, Steve. That is how natural it is for us to do that. Now, I think every one of us in this room, if there's one thing that we hate, Uh, We hate it when we are blamed for something that we did not do. My daughter was just blaming me for something this morning, right? We hate it when we get blamed for something that we, we did not do. So I want you to imagine a scenario, though, where Steve, even though he wasn't even there, you know, that day when Brene spilled the coffee because he was at work, I want you to imagine a scenario where Steve willingly takes the blame so that she could be guilt free. He willingly accepts it, even though he didn't do it. That'd be crazy. Because it's the one thing that we hate, right? When we're blamed for something that we didn't do. But imagine a scenario where he willingly takes the blame for something someone else did. If you can understand that concept, you have half a picture of what the gospel is. When Jesus willingly took our blame for something he didn't do. He takes our sin, takes our curse, takes our punishment. It's on me. It's not on them. He owns up to something that he didn't even do. Now, if you can understand that, you you know half the gospel. But here's the other half. Because Jesus doesn't cast blame, he takes it. But he not only takes our blame, but he gives us credit. So let let me flesh this out, the other half. 
Years ago, my, my wife's boss uh, was working on a big project, traveling all over the country. He finished the project after months, and his superior sweeps in, and the guy takes all the credit for the work that he did. He's like fuming. Uh, and, and so he says to himself, all right, it is what it is. I don't really care. At least I got like points out of all the traveling and stuff like that. But somehow the boss, his superior finagled it in such a way where he even stole the points. I still remember this because he was using like super colorful language to describe how he felt. And he was, he was so upset because why? Someone sweeps in and they steal all the credit for the work that he did. Now imagine this. Now imagine someone not stealing your credit away for the work that you did, but giving you credit for the work that you didn't even do. And that's also what Jesus does for us. You didn't, you didn't live his life. I, didn't, I certainly didn't live his life. But he deposits it into our account and says, I'm giving you credit. I'm not going to steal it. I'm going to give it to you. What Jesus does is the exact opposite of Adam and Eve. They cast blame on one another, cover themselves up. And what Jesus does on the cross is that he doesn't cast blame, but he takes it and he covers us in his righteousness. That is what Jesus does for us. And so if I can address uh, those of you, I mean, one of the things I love about our church is that there are so many of you that have never been to church before and you're curious about Christianity and, and you're investigating it. And, and one of the things I would say to you is that um, when it comes to God, uh, one of the best things that you can do as you learn more about him is keep, keep pushing forward. When you look at the cross, what we see is not a God who wants to fight against us, but what we see is a God who fights for us. And similarly, as you sort of investigate and go on your spiritual journey, I want you to do the same. To see a God who doesn't want to fight against us but fights for us and to surrender your life to him. And I promise you, it is the most fulfilling, most satisfying thing, most freeing thing that you can ever experience. And for my brothers and sisters who identify themselves as Christian already, can I close with one story? from Elizabeth Elliot, who makes up this imaginary story of Jesus walking with his disciples. And he's doing the typical, you know, like rabbinic thing in his head. And, and so they're, they're, they're walking and Jesus says to this disciples, um, can you pick up a stone for me? And Peter, of course, the dude that always puts his foot in his mouth, he's, he's like, well, he never specified what size or weight, so dude picks up like this tiny pebble and puts it in his pocket, and so they start walking. It's like noon, so it's around lunchtime, and Jesus says, can I see your stones? So, so they all take out their stones, he weighs abracadabra, and the stones turn into lunch. Problem is, Peter gets like one potato chip. So he's like, damn it, <laughs> dang it. And Jesus says, come follow me. Right? So they're walking again, and it's like 3 p.m. And Jesus says, um, will you pick up a stone for me? Can you pick up a stone for me? And Peter's like, ah, I've heard this narrative before. So he picks up like this mini boulder, like cross-fitting it around the Sea of Galilee. 
And it's like hours of just carrying this mini boulder. And Jesus says, around dinner time, uh, throw it into the lake. So Peter takes it and throws it into the lake. And Jesus says, follow me. And Peter thinks to himself, wait, what? <laughs> he's like, where's dinner? So he taps Jesus and he's like, uh, Rabbi, where, where, where's dinner? And, and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, were you carrying that stone for me? Or was it really for you? And similarly, are you in this just for you? Are you using God for your own agenda, your own purposes, your best life now? Or is it really about him? This is why we're calling this series after not your own heart, but to be after God's own heart. When someone dies for you, takes blame for you, and gives you credit that you did not deserve, they not only deserve your gratitude and thanks, they deserve your heart too. And if Jesus gives us his heart, who are we to refuse giving him ours? Let's pray together. Lord, I'm, I'm reminded of the uh, prophet Jeremiah when he said that the heart is deceitful above all else and that we are not to trust our feelings at times. And so God, help us to do a very careful spiritual inventory of our, um, of our hearts, you know, why we do the things that we do, uh, even implicitly, sometimes unknowingly without even re realizing it. God, carefully surgically expose those things and purify uh, why we're in this to begin with. In your name I pray, amen.